We're all going to read the Bible together now, so if you've got a Red Pew Bible, grab one of those. It's on page 90. We're having a look at Exodus chapter 33. Exodus chapter 33, beginning at verse 7. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to their tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as one speaks to a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide, Joshua, son of Nun, did not leave the tent. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. <clears throat> I apologise, my voice is not quite what it normally is. Um, I've had a COVID test, everything's fine, okay, so I'm negative, so you can, uh, but uh, it's this infection, inf respiratory infection I've had sort of been a bit <coughs> more difficult for me than I must be, I must be getting older, uh, hasn't shaken it for over a week now. Let's uh, pray as we look at these, um, uh, the concept of tabernacle and temple together this morning. <coughs> Dear Father God, we thank you that you um, speak to us in your word. We thank you for your spirit who's inspired uh, the prophets and teachers of your word to bring uh, your word to us. We pray the same spirit might work in our hearts to open our hearts to your word and to open your word to our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> now, uh, Pippi has uh, very cleverly Thank you, sir. He's a very good servant, isn't he? Really, you know. <laughs> um, we're looking at uh, John's uh, prologue to his gospel, the first uh, 20 verses or so of uh, John chapter 1. And in uh, the beginning, of, we heard last week, uh, or the week before, and we've, we've worked through uh, the, the prologue whereby uh, the Word who was in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him, without him was not anything was made that was made. And so creation is the beginning of that. And then it speaks of the Word, he was in the world, and the world was made by him. Uh, he came into his own, but his own received him not. That's a, that's a reference to the word of God in the Old Testament, coming to Israel. And it's only, and uh, the word was spoken through the prophets of the Old Testament. So the reference to John the Baptist is the final prophet before Jesus arrives. But when we get to verse 14, we get, verse 14, am I doing this or are you doing this? 
Someone's doing it. That's good, isn't it? <coughs> when we get to verse 14, we see the word becomes flesh. Interestingly, the word, name Jesus isn't, isn't used in the prologue. We're talking about the second person of the Trinity, the word of God, the son of God. And the word becomes flesh. And in our NIV, we have and dwelt among us. And Pippi's talked about that. But as she said, the Greek word behind that is tabernacled among us, pitched his tent. And the concept there is that what John is doing is to say that Jesus became a tabernacle, a, a, a tent uh, in his earthly life. So as he moved around uh, Judea and Galilee and had his final resting spot in Jerusalem where he died, uh, just like the tabernacle under Moses did the same thing. It moved around the country and then had its final resting place in Jerusalem where, where David uh, uh, pitched it and then, of course, uh, a temple was built uh, thereafter. So we, the, the word became flesh and tabernacle among us and we have seen his glory, glory of the only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. So the connection of glory and tabernacle is all relates us back to the to the tabernacle of old so if we look at the next slide we'll see that's a picture of what it was like in moses day moses sets up this tabernacle in the wilderness and he sets it up in accordance with god's plan god is gives him a blueprint if you like i don't know whether it was blue or not but anyhow he gives him a blueprint of what the tabernacle should look like and there you'll see, of course, that there's a, a centerpiece, there's this fence around there, so no one could come in except Levites. So all the people gathered around the tabernacle when it was, when it was pitched in the, in the wilderness. <coughs> in the center, you've got, or towards the end, you've got this uh, uh, tent, and its, it's tent has got um, uh, animal skin on the outside, and on the inside, there is two parts of that called the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. The people of God would pitch around that because this was God's dwelling place. <coughs> if you look at the next slide, we might come back to the next one. Inside the, the temple, you've got this, uh, or the tabernacle, you've got the Holy of Holies, which is curtained off from the Holy Place. In the Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant has got cherubim over the top. Uh, they're not just ordinary old seraphim. Cherubim are special angels which are throne attendant angels. So what we've got depicted here in the center of this uh, construction is a throne room. God is, in, as it were, enthroned among the cherubim. Only the high priest would go in there uh, but once a year on the Day of the Atonement. And the priests would offer sacrifices outside the tent and in the inside with, with the holy place. And you'll see there is a, uh, a laver and the, and the lights, a, a bowl for washing, and, uh, and the, and the uh, sacrifices were brought in. And the priests would do their duty. Outside in the court, if I go back to the previous one, if we can, outside in the court, only Levites could go there. Uh, all the people of Israel... They would camp in their various tribes. So we had four tribes would camp on each side. And the four tribes were camped in relationship to Leah uh, and Rachel, the wives of, uh, of Jacob. 
and in the handmaidens, and they would be grouped that, like that, as it were, with God dwelling in their midst. So here was God choosing to come and dwell in the midst of Israel. When the tabernacle was completed, the glory cloud came and filled the tabernacle so that no one could go in. So thick was this glory cloud. It was a way in which God had sort of set his imprimatur upon this tabernacle. And it was a tabernacle or a tent. Tabernacle is just a fancy word for tent, really, because it was on the move. It was on the move through the um, 40 years in the wilderness and then, of course, into Israel. As I said, it moved around a bit. It's Shiloh for a bit. His final resting place in Jerusalem. <clears throat> but what I want you to think about is that this was patterned after the heavenly sanctuary. So if you can take that, um, that picture as a horizontal picture and then flip it vertically. So the outside, the court is open to the, to the sun and the, and the sky, just like we are. In the highest heaven is God's presence, his own real throne room, if you like. And in the glory of, of God surrounds in the holy place, if you, if you like, the heavens above, which we see, we can't see into the holy of holies from where we are on earth. So that the tabernacle actually reflects a, a, horizontally a vertical reality. It's as if we've come into the very presence of God or Aaron has come into the presence of God in, as, our, as the representative of Israel to meet God face to face just like Moses did. <clears throat> the interesting thing about um, the tabernacle is that the outside looks pretty boring. It's just animal skin, uh, goat skin as I recall. But if you were to be on the inside of the Holy of Holies, you get these beautiful curtains, this fine gold work around the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, pomegranates and cherubim are fashioned in this, in this beautiful artwork and inside. But no one sees it but the high priest. But what the high priest does, he has the same kind of clothes on him which reverses the furnishings of the tabernacle. So just next to his skin there's, a, there's an ephod, just like the goat skin on the outside, but over the top is an ephod with beautiful, glorious colours. He's got the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on his breastplate. He's got holy to the Lord on his turban. So when he comes out of the tabernacle, uh, on the day of the atonement and greets the people and declares the people to be forgiven it's like the glory of God is now coming in miniature in the person of the high priest this was God's way of teaching Israel they can only come to him through a mediation they can only come into his presence because he was indeed the holy God and to do so was to do through, through sacrifice the, the dwelling of God was also a meeting place for God so that God met with his people. Moses would meet with, with God in the tent of meeting and he would mediate God's laws and uh, directions to the, to the people of God in the time of the tabernacle. If we move on to the next slide, <coughs> because there are people on, um, watching online, um, this actually is a picture of, it's not quite Solomon's temple, uh, King David wanted to build a temple. He wanted a permanent resting place for the tabernacle. But it wasn't to be David. It was to be David's son. And that has significance too. We'll, we'll see shortly. 
so that Solomon actually builds the temple. So we're now in the um, uh, 11th century BC, and, or 10th century BC, and so Solomon builds this glorious temple. Uh, the temple has new additions, so there's now a court for, for, the, for the Gentiles and a court for, for women, but the inner part, the, uh, the part where the, the Holy of Holies is, is still preserved for only the high priest once a year. And the holy place also for the, the priests and the Levites have their special place. This was, if you like, a permanent dwelling. And when Solomon built his temple, the glory cloud of God, the spirit of God in, in glory, came and, as it were, sanctified this presence, uh, consecrated this building as a place of God's own habitation. That God was saying he would, he would dwell here. It's very interesting when you look at 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon has this wonderful prayer. And he says, how can the God who inhabits eternity dwell in a building like this? And of course, Solomon recognized that no building could contain God. It was a symbolic aspect of the presence of God among his people that the temple represented. And the permanency of the temple in Jerusalem, in the city of the great king, it's the son of David that actually builds this temple. This temple actually um, is not Solomon's temple. It's a picture of Herod's temple. After, after the Babylonians destroyed the temple, so you can imagine what it would be like to have destroyed this beautiful artwork, this beautiful temple and stones, and the, Romans and the Babylonians did that in the 6th century BC. And then, of course, Israel sent to exile. They come back from exile, and Zerubbabel rebuilds the temple. But the temple that Zerubbabel built never has the glory cloud of God come upon it. Very interesting. The glory cloud appears in the tabernacle and in Solomon's temple, but not in Zerubbabel's temple. Later on, just before Jesus is born, the Herod starts building, refashioning Zerubbabel's temple. And that's the picture of what you've got. That's the kind of temple which would have been in Jesus' day. Why is the glory cloud not there? because the true glory of God was going to enter into that temple in the person of Jesus. So when you get to, um, if you look at the next uh, slide, in John chapter 2, when the next chapter after we're looking at in John's Gospel, Jesus comes and he sees the money changes in the temple and he, he gets rid of them. And then he makes this prophetic statement. He says, destroy the temp this temple... And I shall raise it again and in three days. But the temple he spoke of was the temple of his body. You can imagine how extraordinary that would have been for his hearers. Here is this magnificent building of, of the temple, which Herod had made additions to, and for Jesus to say, this is going to be destroyed. That was almost like blasphemy, like the Babylonians coming in um, in 587 BC. No, Jesus is saying, yes, this edifice is going to be destroyed, but I'm going to raise up a true temple, and that's the temple of his body. When uh, Jesus spoke these words, it wasn't clearly understood. And John records in the chapter that after Jesus was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered these words. The tabernacle 
and the temple were both meeting places for God. They were mediated by the high priest. The writer of the Hebrews says that when Jesus rose from the dead, he entered into heaven as a high priest. He enters not into the earthly temple, but into the true presence of God. And there, as it were, makes satisfaction for our sins. So what Jesus has done is, is Jesus has fulfilled all that the temple, the tabernacle before it, had, uh, had identified, had symbolised. And he does so in his body. So that Jesus' body is the new temple. Uh, you can read that throughout. Um, in John's Gospel, there are various features of life. You can, you can see them as you read through John's Gospel. But St. Paul picks this up when he, when he says in um, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 27, you are the body of Christ. That is, the temple. You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. So what we have here is that what Paul is saying is that this language of the temple, Jesus now builds a new temple. But the temple is not just his physical body, it's the body of Christ. So when we speak ourselves as the body of Christ, it's a way of referring to us as the temple. In fact, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, 11, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, when he talks about you are the temple of God, collectively the temple. One of the problems we have in our language is that we sometimes refer to this building as the church. Of course, it is a church building, but the word church actually means meeting, gathering, coming together. And of course, it's the people who are the church. Uh, we're grateful that uh, the Christians never called buildings temples. Even the Jews didn't call their separate building, they called them synagogues, which is another word for meeting. Uh, of course, the Mormons didn't follow that route. They, they called their buildings temples because of their own different theology. I actually thought it would be much better to have called a building like this a kingdom hall, but uh, uh, someone else has taken that term, so we can't use that. Um, but nonetheless, we can survive with a church building if we realise that we are the church. But it's more than that. We are the temple. Now, the interesting thing is that um, in the... Uh, at the time of the Reformation, uh, there were no pews in churches. People would stand in church. You didn't realise that. Didn't know how realise how well off you are sitting for this sermon, did you? <laughs> and, and they'd have sort of benches around the around the, around the church building. And uh, it, pews didn't come in until about the uh, 17th century. Uh, and they they came in and they were raised up high, just like we have here. Watch your step when you get out of the pew here. Uh, and that sense in which and what there was a, uh, there was a development after the Reformation, which really wasn't helpful, was to divide the church into sort of three portions. And it's a, it's a misunderstanding to think of that where the table is and where the rails are, is the Holy of Holies. And this part here, which is where the clergy would meet, not the choir, originally, in the 17th century, the clergy would meet here and the people would be there. What Cranmer did in the Reformation was he, he said there aren't three sections, nave, chancel, and sanctuary. There's only two sections, nave, where you sit, and chancel, where we are. Uh, the word sanctuary 
despite the fact that Anglicans seem to use that word, is not in the prayer book. The rails only came in the 19th century. Didn't have rails. You, could, you would kneel, but you didn't have any aid. The rails were just there to help you. It wasn't there to stop you going in. When I was a young boy, I was told, you're not allowed to go behind the rails because that's the holy place. And that's not true. It's only a place which, because we serve the Lord's Supper there, the body and, bread of, the body and blood of Christ, which are holy elements, certainly true. That's why it's holy communion. When we participate in the body and blood of Christ, because we are the body of Christ. Now, we, we, we're sort of stuck with that in one sense, in our buildings like this, but we mustn't think that this is some kind of reflection of the temple. Why? Because you are the temple. Not just you collectively are the temple, but you individually are temples. When Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 6, he says, worship God in your body because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You were bought with a price. It means, therefore, that the Spirit of God has taken up temple residence in you. Again, if you look in John's uh, chapter 7, he talks about anyone who believes in Jesus, out of his inner person will flow rivers of living water. And that's a reflection of Ezekiel's picture of the temple, the new temple, where the Spirit of God would flow forth, imaged by water. And the Spirit of God is actually does that on the day of Pentecost in, in coming to all God's people and raising them up to be with Christ, to, as it were, join them with Christ. So the New Testament speaks about the way in which it's the Spirit of Christ that lives in you. It means, therefore, that as Christians, we're never away from the temple. It means, therefore, that where in the Old Testament you'd come to the temple to worship, now we're always in temple. Every aspect of our lives should be worship. That's the service of God. It raises the stakes for the lives we live because we are always living in the presence of God. And that's because of what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has raised up us up with him. We're with Christ in the heavenly places, but we're very much located here on earth. But Christ is with us. Remember Jesus' words to the disciples when he gives them the Great Commission? Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. And of course, at the end of the age when God wraps up this old world and brings in the new heavens and the new earth, when you read in Revelation 21, 22, and I saw no temple in the city because the Lord God and the Lamb of God are the temple. There was no sun nor moon because the glory of God would shine from the, from the Lord God and the Lamb. That picture we have is where the temple is subsumed in the presence of God. And we will be a part of that. We'll always be living, as it were, in that temple experience. But we're living now in that temple experience. 
And so the question at the end of the, the sermon outline, which I've been vaguely following, uh, is why, how should we then live? The significance of you being a Christian, if you put your trust in Jesus, if you've been baptised into Christ, if you identified yourself as a follower of Jesus, the reality is that Jesus has come to make his home in you. In John 14, it talks about the Father and the Son make their abode in the believer. And they do that by the Spirit. God in his Trinitarian reality makes his home in us. You know what it's like when um, someone comes to your house and, and the place is not quite tidy so you run around making sure everything's tidy? Well, imagine if there was someone always in your home, always watching what you're doing, always present in every aspect of your life at home. Well, that's what it's like when you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. God is present with us, refining us, changing us from one degree of glory to another. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So when John opens his gospel with the word of God, who from the beginning has been God, even before the beginning, at the beginning God created of course, God pre-exists the beginning. Time begins at creation, but God pre-exists time. The words always dwelt with the Father and the Spirit. And now the Word becomes flesh and dwells among us, tabernacles among us, because he's gathering to himself temples of the Holy Spirit. He's gathering to himself people who will live lives that honour him and please him and rejoice in him. And as Christmas dawns upon us in a less than two weeks' time, we reflect upon that first advent and that second advent when Jesus will come back to wrap up this world. The question for us as we live each day as temples of the Holy Spirit is how shall we then live? Shall we live in recognition that God is with us and that what we do in the body is to please him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your spirit, the spirit of the risen Jesus who lives in us. We thank you that you should not only become, in Christ become flesh, but that you should dwell in us as human flesh to renew us, change us, to make us more like your son. So, Father, bless us each day as temples of your Holy Spirit that we might live for your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.